Blog Talk Radio. A show of rock and roll comparisons and contrasts. I'm Lena Stagg of the Recipe Records Cookbook Series, a series of four rock and roll cookbooks that incorporate rock history, facts, trivia, and photos with clever recipes themed for music genres and bands. And I'm Jude Kessler. I'm the author of the John Lennon series, which is a nine-volume expanded biography that chronicles the life of John in a researched, documented, but narrative format. And today, Lane and I are going to call upon those perspective areas of expertise because we are here, as she said, to compare and contrast the subject of Lena's most recent book, The Rolling Stones, with the subject of my books, The Beatles, baby. Yes, that's right. Uh, This is part two of our friendly little debate on the topic of who really was the greatest rock and roll band of all time. I say it's those bad boys from London, the Rolling Stones. And in my new book, The Rolling Scones, Let's Spend the Bite Together, I prove it. Yeah, well, I scoff at that because we all know, everyone listening, Andrea, Dwayne, Cameron, Dara, and her parents, Debbie and Wayne, we know that the absolute greatest rock and roll band across the universe was and is the Beatles, whom, of course, you will learn about in my new upcoming book coming out in March, Should Have Known Better. We'll see. Because today, we're going to go back in time and look at the childhoods of each band, their roots and their ancestries, the deep cultural influences that helped form these boys into the band that they became. Yeah, now guys, this is actually part two of our Beatles versus Stones debate. If you missed out on part one on the band's accomplishments, we kind of go back and forth, head to head on what the two bands accomplished. You can still find that on the She Said, She Said archives. But each show is completely independent. You don't have to have listened to part one. So if you're joining us for the first time tonight, no problem at all, because we are all set to roll. We're going to start our examination of the Stones' early influences versus the Beatles' background and heritage. So I asked Jude what she thought most influenced the Beatles to become the band they developed into. And she said, without a doubt, the greatest influence on the Beatles was Liverpool. Yep, and similarly, I asked Lena which of the many, many influences on the Stones she thought mattered most, and she said it was post-World War to London. 
So we're going to look at each of these hometowns and situations, and we're going to see how these two diametrically opposed cities shaped such completely different rock and roll bands. Now, Lena, I went first on the first debate, so you're going to be up first tonight, so just let it roll and tell us about London after World War II and how you think that really affected Mick and Keith and the rest of the Stones. Okay. All right. Well, no doubt about it, the Rolling Stones had a more privileged and cultured upbringing than the Beatles. Remember, the Stones grew up in the cultured city of London, and because of that, they had many opportunities. London itself was a city of growth, though it was scarred by World War II. London still put on a smiling face and pushed forward to rebuild and heal. If if our listeners are viewing the photographs that are flashing on the blog talk page, you'll see a great shot of a determined Londoner having her cup of tea on top of a heap of bombed out war ruins. Just like that lady, most Londoners kept calm and carried on in the aftermath of the war. In fact, the Summer Olympics were even held in London in 1948, only a few short years after the end of the war. What did that mean for the Stones? Well, being true Londoners, they were blessed with a more privileged and cultured upbringing than the Beatles. Remember, they grew up in the cosmopolitan city of London, and they were surrounded by art, the theater, fashion, music, and many more opportunities. In the late 1940s and all through the 50s and 60s, London was the capital of culture. So growing up there, the Stones were exposed to artistic music genres such as jazz and blues. Furthermore, all of England's major record companies like Decca and all of the record recording studios and record producers and engineers were located in London. So the chances of making it big in the music industry were, of course, much higher in London than for the outsiders. Those who grew up in the city's elegant surroundings and who spoke the Queen's English had a much better chance of being included in the music industry and recognized as stars than the underprivileged outsiders did. Uh, those were just the facts. You know, that's absolutely true. In fact, Lane, I'm reading a great, great, great book I talked to you about a little bit earlier called The Postmistress about London in um, World War II, during World War II, and it amazes me to see the way Londoners set their faces toward getting up every day and going about their business and not letting the war stop them. I mean, their spirit is, oh, it's, uh, it's incredible. Everybody needs to read that book. But the exact opposite is true of Liverpool in the post-war years in the 50s and 60s. I'm sure that most people remember that haunting quote from the Bible, can anything good come from Nazareth? Well, that was pretty much the attitude that people had 
in England towards Liverpool in the 50s and the 60s. Liverpool to them was embarrassing. It was a fail. Now, before World War II, Liverpool was a bustling port, and I think most people who saw the movie Titanic remember the word Liverpool painted on the side of that great and mighty ship. The Titanic sailed from Liverpool. Most of the ships that left England sailed from the port of England, Liverpool. So what did that get it? Well, it was second only to London in Hitler's henchmen and their nightly bombing raids. Liverpool was utterly destroyed. And unlike London that had the financial means to recover after World War II, Liverpool did not. So the Beatles who were born just prior to World War II or during the war grew up facing bombed-out rubble, rationing, deprivation, hardship, total discomfort. And it's what gave them the grit to succeed when other groups would have given up. They knew how to persist growing up Merseyside, as they say, meaning on the side of the Mersey River, on the banks of the Mersey. But even before the bombing, even before that happened, we got to admit Liverpool was a pretty tough town. It was an industrial town. A great vast majority of the people who lived there were dock workers and factory workers, day laborers, sailors. It wasn't a poshy, upscale city, and it certainly was not London where the Stones were from. If you hail from Liverpool, you were considered a yob, Y-O-B, a yob, a a yokel, we might say in America, a second-rate citizen. So even though Liverpool is one of my favorite, well, probably my favorite place in the whole world, a wonderful place, now the capital of culture for the world a few years ago, Far from being a benefit to the Beatles in the 50s and 60s, culturally, Liverpool posed a barrier to success for them. They knew from day one what what they were going to have to do was scale the wall of success, and that barrier was a high one. Well, those are the two hometowns of our respective heroes. But to be fair, we need to look at each of the stones individually because, as we all know, no two people hailing from the same town or same region are necessarily anything alike. And even though London provided some benefits to the stones, we need to look at their boys individually because just growing up in London did not secure success for anybody. First, we have Brian Jones, the young man who is credited with starting the Rolling Stones. Brian was born in 1942 in Cheltenham, and his father was an aeronautical engineer, and his mom was a piano teacher. His parents were very gifted musicians, and they passed that trait along to Brian. He was very well-versed in many genres of music. He studied music in school and outside of school, but Rather than continuing as the obedient schoolboy, at age 16, Brian got his 14-year-old girlfriend pregnant, and that just sort of started a spiral downhill with uh, bad choices that that he made, barring organizing the Rolling Stones, of course. Tragically, Brian was, um, Brian, died at the age of 27 during the height of the Stones' career. Next is Mick Jagger. He was born 74 years ago in Dartford, Kent. 
He grew up in a middle-class family. His mom was a hairdresser and sold Avon. That explains a lot. And his dad was a highly regarded physical education teacher who worked Mick like a soldier. Every day he had to do calisthenics before he went to school. And that explains the incredible physical condition that Mick still is in today. I've seen him seen some moves like Jagger lately, and <laughs> I'm amazed. Mick did really well in school, and he was even the captain of his basketball team. He was a pretty much a full step up the social ladder from Keith Richards. Jagger was refined and obedient, and he knew how to be regal when necessary, but He really enjoyed playing like a bad boy. Long before the Rolling Stones became a band, Mick was known by the head of Chess Records, Marshall Chess, in Chicago. But he did not know Mick Jagger as a musician, but as a customer, because Mick would send money orders from the U.K. to Chicago to purchase authentic Delta Blues and Chicago-style R&B records long before he had a band. So that's a perfect example of how members of the Rolling Stones had resources to nurture their passion and their hobby. One great example of the vast range of music that Mick grew up listening to can be heard in this Stones original, Ruby Tuesday. Listen to the classical overtones of the song, and it's a sound that, may not be familiar to young Beatles. She would never say where she came from. Yesterday don't matter if it's gone. While the sun is bright Or in the darkest night No one knows She comes and goes Goodbye, Ruby Tuesday Who could hang her name on And next on the Stones roster is that unforgettable Keith Richards. Keith was born 73 years ago, and he grew up in Dartford as well. Now, Keith and Charlie Watts are the only two members of the Stones that had similar, whose background is similar to that of the Beatles. Keith's parents were, like most of the Beatles' families, working class. His father was a, a factory worker, and his mom did odd jobs. His parents were separated when he was a teen, and he remained estranged from his father until the 80s. Richard's mom, Doris, had a great ear for music and passed that along to Keith. However, Keith did did have a few benefits that most of the Beatles wouldn't experience growing up, as Keith was a Boy Scout, which indicates some privilege, and he was a member of of an elite choir at his school, which spent one year performing all over the UK, even for the Queen herself. The fourth member of the Stones, Charlie Watts, was born 76 years ago in Kingsbury. 
His family was solidly middle class. His dad, a lorry driver for London Midland and Scottish Railway. Charlie excelled in school and was talented in art, cricket, and football. And a lot like John Lennon, Watts was gifted artistically. He was trained as a graphic artist, which the Stones benefited from later with their use of graphic arts. He began playing drums in London's R&B clubs and was a talented jazz drummer. Finally, we have the member Bill Wyman, who was significantly older than the other Stones. He definitely had advantages that the working-class Beatles never experienced. As a child, Bill learned to play the organ alongside his father. After he graduated, Bill went to the Royal Air Force. And while he was in the Air Force, he became familiar with the music of Elvis, Chuck Berry, and Fats Domino. He even taught himself how to play bass. He got married in 1960, and in 1962, he auditioned for the Rolling Stones. So the Rolling Stones, five individuals, all with some musical background, one with an artistic background, and all but one hailing from solid families. The Stones came together in 1961 when Jagger and Richards moved into a flat in Chelsea, London with Brian Jones. Richards and Jones were planning an R&B group. Jagger was studying business at the London School of Economics, which not a lot of people realize. The boys were talented musicians who were sitting in on bands at local clubs and pubs, not really thinking much about their futures. Playing music was more a hobby and a passion and the study of American blues music. These boys weren't intentionally setting out to be the toppermost of the poppermost, as the Beatles were, not early on at least. Actually, they were clean-cut guys who weren't looking for any trouble, much to the um, what is commonly thought about them. They were really good guys. They played at small clubs, often for no money and using borrowed gear. But on July 12, 1962, at the Marquee Club, the name Rolling Stones was adopted, and the band, as you might say, began rolling. <laughs> I love that. I mean, that really brings home that, that these guys each had their own individual story. And uh, I do see some similarities between the Stones and the Beatles there, um, especially when we talk about Charlie and his dad being a lorry driver and uh, Keith Richards, definitely some similarities. But the in general, the mini bios of the four Beatles read quite differently, especially from the stories of Bill Wyman and Mick Jagger, completely differently. First of all, biggest difference is that three of the four Beatles are Irish. There's John O'Leanan, family name O'Leanan, changed to Lennon later, James Paul McCartney and George Harrison. Only Richard Starkey came from a strictly English background. And this wasn't unusual for Liverpool, of course, because Liverpool lies just across the Irish Channel from Ireland. Thousands and thousands of Irish immigrated there just after the Great Potato Famine in the late 1850s. Today, Liverpool is called the capital of Ireland. Man, you ought to be there on St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> Ooh, it's wild. Mm. 
in <laughs> the 1950s and 1960s, 80%, percent of the population of Liverpool was Irish. Now, why does that even matter in what we're talking about today? Well, because in London, the British bass stones grew up embracing cosmopolitan music, blues, very popular, jazz, very popular, upscale music. But the Beatles, from a lower-class Irish community, their sound stemmed from very sentimental and harmonic Irish folk songs. And the music hall was still huge. Vaudeville was still huge in Liverpool. So when the boys write songs like This Boy, and yes, it is, that's that Irish, sentimental, harmonic background that they're hying to call forth. And when they do show tunes later on, like When I'm 64 and Your Mother Should Know, that's the vaudeville, the music hall influence. I mean, the sounds of their childhood stayed with them, and it produced beautiful, beautiful ballads. Well, kind of like this one. There are places I remember these Beatles as individuals? Well, I think that the best way to understand that is to look at their houses. And Lena was so sweet, she uh, put a picture of each of the Beatles' homes on Blog Talk. So if you're listening in archives or if you're listening right now, you can follow along unless you're in the car, and you can see their houses. I'll tell you a little bit bit about each one. The first one is a lovely two-story mock Tudor residence with a gorgeous iron fence. This is 251 Men Love Avenue. It's a home that's so beautiful it even has a name, Mendips. That's the growing up home of John Lennon. And if you're looking at it, you're going, oh, well, gosh, that's beautiful. It's so elegant. But you do have to remember that it's a shared dwelling. It's what we in America would call a condo or a townhome. Two families are living in that home. It's in a quaint little village just outside of Liverpool proper called Woolton. And John lived there with his aunt and uncle, and we will talk about that more in the next radio show that we're going to do. He's not living with his parents. He's living in half of that home with his aunt and uncle. All in all, financially, you can see by looking at that house that John's childhood was very adequate, very upper middle class. But John Lennon's dreams were bigger than that. Getting out of Liverpool and getting out into the world beyond is what pushed John to work, to succeed, to get ahead. The Stones came from areas of London that were lovely, and they never really felt that need to climb out, to get to something bigger and better. But that's very much a part of the Beatle brain. So let's look at Paul's home. It's that light brown and dark brown brick row home. The gutter is one border of that house, and the gate is the other border. There's a little bitty walled-in garden on the front. That's 24th Lynn Road, the home of Paul McCartney. Now, now you can see it's much more modest than John's house. It's nice, 
but it, and it's a middle class dwelling, but a, a lower middle class dwelling. Paul's father works for the Cotton Exchange, and even though that gives Paul as a boy some free time to play, he too belonged to the Boy Scouts. Um, and it gives his father some free time to play in a band called the Jim Mac Jazz Band. That happens only because Paul's mother is working as well. His mother, Mary, is working as a nurse. But for Paul, this was not enough. More than any other Beatle, Paul desperately wanted a better life for himself. He is the first Beatle to want to move to London. He wants to go to the theater, the big theater, not just the Empire Theater. He wants to learn to speak French, to attend the opera. He wants to climb one rung up the social ladder. It is very important to him to do better than his beginnings. Now, the third Beetle home is a flat row home, no garden in the front this time. We're going another step down the ladder. The house is red, and it does not include the maroon row home next to it. That's 12 Arnold Grove, which is a later boyhood home of George Harrison. This is one of the nicest homes that the Harrisons ever owned. True row home here. No garden, no frills. George's father is a bus driver in Liverpool. And you have to realize that none of the stones came from this echelon of society. So how did this affect George? Well, he grew up very aware of money. And as a Beatle, he's the one that wants to know what are we getting from this contract? What's the cut that we're getting? How much do we have in the bank? What's the contract on this concert? How much are we making? Very concerned with money. Much later, he writes Taxman about the way the Beatles are being unfairly taxed in the 95% bracket. George always worried about having enough financially. So when Brian Epstein tells them they're going to have to wear suits, bow at the waist, go buy a playlist, quit throwing their sandwiches at the audience, George is willing to do whatever it takes. He'll do whatever it takes because he wants to do well financially, whereas Paul wants to do well socially. Finally, you're going to see a tiny white row house with pink shutters and the pink V for victory, World War II, above <laughs> the door. That's the home of Ringo Starr. And none of the other Beatles and none of the Stones understood deprivation the way Richard Starkey, Ringo Starr did. Not only did he grow up living in this tiny, tiny row home, on a cobblestone alley just off of a local a local pub. But most of Ringo's youth was spent away from his parents, living in a hospital or a sanitarium. Ringo was desperately ill on two occasions. And when you live in the Dingle, which was one of the poorest areas of Liverpool, you don't just run to the doctor. First time, his appendix burst, and he was in a coma mm. for almost two months. We, we really almost lost Ringo then. Finally, after years of being in the hospital, he comes home, he gets a cold, it develops into pleurisy, and he goes right back to the sanitarium to live for months. That's the plight of poor children in Liverpool. Many were ill, many died. So Ringo, he's happy to go along with anything anyone suggests to get out of poverty. He's thrilled to be alive. Money and success for him were a lifeline, and this is the life that he dreamed of, a happier life, and being a Beatle was going to give this life to him. In the town where I was born lived a man who sailed to sea and he told us of his life in the land of submarines. So we said, 
Well, Jude, you have given us great points on how the Beatles were affected and inspired by their roots in Liverpool. Like the Beatles, the Stones' style was shaped by the geographic location where they were born and raised. However, the Stones were blessed with this great gift of culture and style, a la London. Whether they realized that or not, it just infused confidence and perhaps a a little more of a laid-back hipster attitude when it came to creating their music and their style. It seemed that their talent oozes from their hearts, which is where they went in order to recreate the music that set them on fire, American blues music. London was the stage for the band to reinvent the genre and give thousands of fans music that would in turn set their souls afire. It's so cool that both of these boys were inspired, both bands were inspired by their hometown because Liverpool was equally important to the Beatles. It gave them two things. One, motivation and perspiration to find a way out of there to succeed. (laughs) And it gave them inspiration because it gave them their magical, musical Irish heritage and that love of the music hall and the love of showmanship that was forever with them. Liverpool definitely made them who they were and who they still really are if you go to a Paul concert today. There's a great book by an author named P, the initial P, hyphenated name Willis Pitts. It's called Liverpool, the Fifth Beatle, and he says that Liverpool, more than Brian Epstein, more than Stu Sutcliffe, is the Fifth Beatle. I honestly believe that. An American author, Sue Monk Kidd, wrote a great novel called The Mermaid Chair, and in it she said, you can go other places, all right. You can live on the other side of the world, but you can't ever leave home. And the Beatles, no matter how hard they struggled to free themselves of Liverpool financially, socially, whatever, were always a part of the city. Their childhoods mattered, Liverpool mattered, and they were entangled in Liverpool in a way that Mick and Keith and Brian and Charlie et al. never were really entangled in London. Even when John had left Liverpool, and was living in New York City, he had a picture of Quarry Bank, his high school, nailed above his bed. And that was the first thing that he saw each morning and the last thing he saw at night because Liverpool really, whether he wanted to admit it or not, was a silent partner in all that the Beatles did and were and really still are. Well, that is where our respective bands came from. Next in our upcoming episode of The Stones versus The Beatles, we'll build on this foundation and talk about what motivated these two groups to become rock stars. And just like the things we've been telling you today about their hometowns and childhoods, the stories about what made the Beatles and the Stones decide to give their whole entire lives to music is going to be completely, vastly different, 180 out. So please join us in three weeks for part three of our Stones versus Beatles debate and the battle for the greatest rock and roll band of all time. We'll wage on, baby. <laughs> and also, coming very soon, we're going to have a very cool spotlight special that we're going to be hosting. It's a brand new theme show, and we're going to feature it whenever the spirit moves us every now and then just for fun. It is called our hashtag I, the letter I, eye candy show. 
That's a lowercase i dash show, i dash candy show. The I stands for an Internet icon who is inspirational and informational. And under that banner, we're going to introduce you to some of the hottest eye candy guests you can possibly imagine. I asked Jude who she would like as our hashtag eye candy guest, and she immediately said, former Beatle Charles Newby and former Beatle Pete Best. <laughs> Jim Bonacetto will tell you that I nearly pushed him to the ground to get to Chaz Newby. Yes, that would be that would be a dream come true. And I asked Lena whom she wanted as her hashtag eye candy stars, and she said the one and only witty and so much fun Angie and Ruth McCartney. We got to admit, we both voted 100% for the charming hashtag Ivor Davis. Woo! <laughs> yes, we love Ivor. We love him. So stay tuned for that great new feature coming soon. And until our next Stones versus Beatles debate, we invite you to visit our lovely, sleek new websites. My website is, all one word, johnlennonseries.com. And mine is lanastag.com. You can find both of us on all sorts of social media. We love to interact with our fans. We're both on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. So please, please check us out. And as this show is reaching its playout groove, we're going to leave you with a real Beatles-Stones duel. Absolutely. So enjoy. The, the next 30 seconds of brown sugar and revolution and we wish you food for thought food for the soul food for the love of rock and roll ta and shine on <laughs> 